This is Innovating a Bright Future. Welcome to the first bonus episode of Season 2. I'm your host, Avery Kreiwalt, and this is the show where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technologies driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. For this bonus episode, we're going back into the world of climate politics, and we're going to focus entirely on the international side of climate policy. If you keep up with climate news, or really news in general, because climate news is very relevant to literally everyone, you probably heard about COP26. But what is a COP? The COP part of COP26 stands for Conference of the Parties. It's when all 197 parties who are part of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC, meet to discuss goals, strategies, plans, and agreements to tackle the climate crisis. The 26th means it's the 26th meeting. So between October 31st and November 12th of 2021, representatives and leaders from the nations of the UNFCCC gathered in Glasgow, Scotland, and attempted to forge new agreements and goals concerning climate change. It's the 26th time that nations have met like this. That's what we're going to talk about today. What goes on at these meetings? Who has power? Who doesn't? What are they supposed to achieve? And do they ever actually succeed? Let's get into it. Alright, first things first, little disclaimer. I did not go to COP26. My invitation must have got lost somewhere, didn't get invited. So everything that I'm passing on to you is from other sources, which of course will be in the show notes if you want to read on. I'm repackaging all of this info into a nice pretty little box that's filled with information from a bunch of different people. If you want a first-person perspective on what a COP is actually like, How to Save a Planet did an excellent episode on it, and they actually got a reporter inside the conference, so I'll link that up in the show notes, and I highly recommend you check it out. I'm also going to mention a few other global climate agreements and stuff like that that I just breeze over, and that's because we already covered them in the Season 1 bonus episode titled Climate Politics Basics. Now, I told you what a COP is, but I didn't mention how they came about or why they exist. In 1988, the UN Environmental Programme established the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. It was their job to conduct research and report on the dangers of climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. A few years later, after the IPCC released new reports detailing greenhouse gas emissions causing harmful global warming, the UN body began negotiating to form an official global body to focus on climate change greenhouse gas emissions, and mitigation. And so, four years after the establishment of the IPCC, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change was finalized as text and opened for signatures at the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. Almost every UN nation joined the framework, 196 countries altogether. The objective of the framework is to provide a global system of cooperation and accountability with the express goal of limiting temperature rise and climate change and adapting to the impacts of climate change. Since 1992, the UNFCCC has been the collective behind all of the major global climate agreements that we spoke about in the climate politics episode last season, the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement being the most notable. 
three years later, allowing enough time for countries to fully embrace the text of the UNFCCC framework, all signed nations met at the first conference of the party, or COP1, in Berlin. This concept of the conference and the UNFCCC sounds great. Every country comes together once a year to talk about how they're preventing climate change. But it's not that simple, and it's definitely not that easy. The goal of these COPs is to write new legislation that binds nations to new goals, strategies, and procedures. Each conference, parties submit reports for the previous year, their emissions targets compared to how much they actually reduced, and a whole bunch of other metrics related to climate change development of renewable energy resources, fossil fuel investment and development, public engagement, efforts to green transport or government fleet vehicles, all of that stuff. The reports are often compared to previous agreements like Paris and Kyoto and past COP agreements and outcomes. It's difficult to understand and even harder to explain, but the idea is to take into account every factor possible, including climate pledges, but also things like how well a nation's economy is doing and the political stability of the state, and then assess if each country is doing their part for climate change. To boil it down to something infinitely more simple than what it actually is, the first goal of the conference is to establish which countries had a good year for climate and which ones did not. Then the talking happens. Days and days and days of talking. Talking as a 197-country collective, talking as small groups, representatives from every country trying to negotiate and discuss and collaborate with every other country. A lot happens during this time, 80% of which we will probably never know because it happens behind closed doors. The second big goal of the conference is to forge something new, to make a new agreement. Like I said, this is the point of a COP, to write new global climate legislation every year so that countries aren't allowed to slack off from their pledges and are held accountable to their citizens, the nations of the world, and the planet itself. The most important of these agreements are the ones making meaningful changes to global agreements and that push countries towards being more renewable and sustainable, polluting less and preserving the planet, while still allowing the countries to prosper and grow. The Copenhagen Accord, the Durban Platform for Enhanced Action, and the Lima Call for Action are the most notable and establish substantial global goals for countries to follow in the coming years. These agreements sometimes succeed and sometimes fail. Sometimes agreements emerge from the COP unsatisfactory or non-existent altogether. I could be wrong about this, but from my research, it seems like we only get an actual written agreement from all 197 countries of the COP every couple of years. The rest of the time, everyone goes home disappointed. This is where the complexity of trying to get 197 countries to agree on something comes in. It's unimaginably difficult to get every country to agree to a single piece of legislation. That's why these conferences take two weeks to write an eight-page document, and sometimes nothing even comes of it and everyone's time is wasted anyway. Every single word that is written in this document is carefully considered, edited, disputed, argued over and changed probably five times before it's actually written in. This goes on for a while, both as a giant group and as a smaller group. Individual nations propose changes and suggest edits, all of which are rooted in each country's self-interest, of course. In the last day or two, the hope is to have a document complete, to read it in its entirety and hopefully, hopefully come to a point where every country is like, alright, fine, I guess, it's okay. And that's how our global climate legislation is written. It's bizarre to think about. 
The people arguing over this document are just people, like you and me and everyone else. It's a lot of pressure. The people who go to these conferences have to somehow juggle the needs of their country, the needs of almost every other country in the world, and the desperate need for decarbonization and climate mitigation. It's ridiculously difficult, and it's honestly quite incredible that agreements ever emerge from these conferences. So what happened at COP26 in Glasgow? One more thing before we get into that. We're getting there, I promise. Keep in mind that we're bypassing dozens, if not hundreds, of agreements that have emerged from, been reevaluated at, or been amended at these conferences or other conferences of the world. The world of global climate politics is infinitely complex, but let's try to scratch the surface of this beast a little bit. There will be a ton of links to read in the show notes. The Greenpeace UK one is super in-depth, so if you want to read more, start there. And if you want a headache, the Glasgow Climate Pact is in there too. As was expected, a lot happened. It's impossible to keep track of who talked to who and about what, so let's just look at the results. After the conference was extended one day, the Glasgow Climate Pact was agreed to by all parties of the UNFCCC, and no one was happy. I mean, at least we got an agreement. At least there's that. But yeah, no one was really satisfied with the outcome. First of all, one of the agreements of the new pact was to better support developing countries, for developed countries to better fund and support developing countries in shifting towards sustainable means and to pay for loss and damage, as it's called. In other words, compensating poorer countries for the impacts of climate change that rich countries have caused by stubbornly refusing to decarbonize. It's important to note that this irregularity was recognized at the conference and an agreement was made for this cause. It was written in the document explicitly. They recognized that the goal of providing 100 billion US dollars to developing countries in transitioning to climate mitigation has not been met over the past few years and must be met beginning right now in 2022 and onward. It also explicitly urges in multiple instances collaboration, including financial and technological support, between developed countries and developing countries. This is great. It's a lot more transparency and upfront agreement than we're used to at this global scale. But it's still lacking a framework of action and the means to put those goals into action, which is what we'll have to watch for from our leaders over the coming years. One of the pieces that's most exciting at first glance is the consensus to establish a global market for carbon offsets, meaning that soon there should be a way for companies pursuing mitigation by planting trees or doing direct air carbon capture to sell quote-unquote carbon space in the atmosphere to higher polluting companies. Basically, if a company doesn't want to switch to renewable energy, boom, pay someone to plant trees in Argentina to pull all that carbon out of the atmosphere in uh, a lot of years. Oh, so what at first seemed like a great way to incentivize sustainable companies to keep doing their thing, it's actually a way for bigger, richer, larger emitting companies to sell off their accountability. Maybe that's not the best way to do it. The new pact also calls out the poor actions of the nations of our world pretty bluntly. For the first time ever, 1.5 degrees is named as a goal. It's named as a stretch goal, reaffirming the global goal of holding the global temperature 2 degrees below pre-industrial levels and establishing 1.5 degrees as a goal that countries should pursue efforts towards. Nonetheless, it's important, because countries like the Maldives and Kiribati, members of AOSIS, or the Alliance of Small Island States, have been calling for this for over a decade. And that's because 1.5 degrees is essential. 
If the global temperature rises 1.5 degrees, member countries of AOSIS will suffer flooding, infrastructure destruction, and countless other impacts of climate change. But if the temperature reaches 2 degrees, many of these countries will be submerged, like underwater, completely, all the time. Their homes, livelihoods, their entire nation will just be gone. So even though the wording is obviously corrupted by big emitters who don't want to fully commit to that goal, the fact that 1.5 degrees made it into the pact is an absolute win, and a win that can be attributed in large part to AOSIS, 39 of the geographically smallest, least emitting nations in the world. What an accomplishment. At the same time, PACT recognizes the current agreements, targets, and national goals for the coming decades are not even in line with 2 degrees, which is something we touched on in our politics episode last season. Even though the Paris Agreement sets the goal to limit warming to 2 degrees at a maximum, the underlying agreements and targets have not been even close to achieving that, and even those targets we haven't hit. Again this year, the cumulative goals of all the countries presented at COP26 estimate that the planet will warm even more than 2 degrees. So, the Glasgow Climate Pact has called for every country to return with new, more ambitious goals for COP27 in 2023, instead of waiting the typical five years before reinstating new goals. This is great, but it's also a problem, because we can't keep kicking the can down the road. I read while researching for this bonus episode that there's no specific point in which we should give up on climate change, ever, period. But this is without a doubt a turning point. As we've been saying for years, if our leaders don't be more ambitious this year, we're in trouble. We've said that year after year after year. Well, this is the culmination of those years that have built up. One more time, if our leaders as a planet are unable to come back in 2023 after reflecting on, on COP26 with more ambitious goals, then our planet is truly, truly in danger. And before I get into the last piece of the pact that I want to talk about, I want to mention that besides the Glasgow Climate Pact, there were many, 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 many deals between countries big and small. Some major fossil fuel funders in places like Canada, the US, and the UK made an agreement to stop funding overseas fossil fuel operations. Which means, hey, if it's within our national borders, we'll consider it. Maybe we'll keep using fossil fuels, who knows? But if it's in a different country, we won't mess with it, which, I mean, could be better, but it's progress. More than half of the parties signed an agreement to reverse deforestation in the coming years, which is also great, but there's absolutely no plan or deadline or elaboration on how. So, could use some more work, but it's a good idea to start with. And also, over 100 countries have agreed to cut methane emissions by 30% by 2030, which is fantastic mostly by plugging up oil and gas wells and reducing emissions from landfills. The unfortunate thing is, they didn't talk about the industry of meat and dairy, which has a big impact on methane emissions. So that was a bit disappointing. And finally, the three words that shook the world. Because for the first time ever, a global climate agreement has been made that explicitly states the need for reducing use of fossil fuels. Now hang on, how is that possible? We've come this far, 26 global conferences, without ever saying that we need to stop burning the bad fiery stuff? Yep. Yes, we have. So let's walk it through. Up until the final day of the conference, it was written in the pact that countries should accelerate efforts 
towards the phase-out of unabated coal power and inefficient fossil fuel subsidy. A global climate agreement to stop burning coal. That is amazing. Unfortunately, this utopia of global agreement couldn't last, and before the final pact was written, India, China, and other large emitters exerted their power over the masses to have the text changed to the phase down of coal instead of phase out. All of a sudden, we went from eradicating coal power to, eh, maybe we'll try to reduce it. And don't get me wrong, that's still a win. It's still something to celebrate. But it's also very clear that we were so close to having something truly great and we were stopped just short. It's heartbreaking. And it was for the rest of the countries at the COP. At the end of the day, countries knew that it was better to emerge from Glasgow with something to work with. A new pact, even though it had been tarnished at the last minute, than nothing at all. But it wasn't the way it was supposed to end. Countries like the Maldives and Kiribati had been let down. The planet had been let down, and everyone felt it. As the president of the COP, Alok Sharma, was forced to read out the last-minute change from phase-out to phase-down to a conference of 197 countries fighting for the future of our world, he broke. He cried in front of delegates from almost every country on Earth because he felt the grief and anguish of this change just as much as the rest of the world did. I wouldn't usually link a video of someone crying in the show notes, but to see this man in a suit, on a podium, the president of a UN conference, apologize for the turn of events, cry, and be forced to pause his reading and recover, it is a powerful image to see. His breath catches in his throat and he pauses. And slowly, the audience, hundreds of parties represented, applaud. The nations of the world stand in support and solidarity with him, recognizing as one the moment of loss and anguish at the close of a conference that could have been more than it was. May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologize for the way this process has unfolded, um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment. But I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. It cuts through the rhetoric and the jargon of a two-week international conference, and it reveals the truth about the COP. We are all just people. We all inhabit the same earth, and we all have a duty to protect that earth so that our future generations can live on it as we have. Beyond age, race, sex, gender, religion, and language, we are human. We owe our planet and our children the mutual right to live on this earth without fighting for their lives. COP26 was revolutionary in the space of global climate talk. History was made multiple times, mentioning 1.5 degrees, 
agreeing to move against fossil fuels more aggressively than ever, allowing for more developing countries, along with youth and advocacy organizations, to make their voices heard. It is unfortunate how it ended. But overall, the Glasgow Climate Pact is a big step in the right direction, and we should be proud of the outcome. The next step is to hold our leaders accountable. If you can vote, vote green. And if you have the time, it doesn't take much, talk to your representatives. Let them know that climate is on your mind for the next election, so they better step up or make way for someone who will. Thank you for listening. I'm sorry it got sad at the end, but watching that video hit me hard, and it was another reminder of just how important all of this is. So if you made it through, truly thank you. Of course, tons of links in the show notes for this one, lots of reading if you're up for it. And other than that, share this episode with someone if you found it interesting. If you hated it in its entirety, uh, sorry. But we'll be back again next week with another tech episode. Stay innovative. I'll see you then.